Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll continue this morning in our series, Stay the Course, on the book of 1 Corinthians. If all goes according to plan, I believe that this Sunday and next Sunday are the last times you will be sitting in these pews. If all goes according to plan, I believe that the following week we may be meeting somewhere else. We haven't figured out exactly how that's going to work yet. We're waiting to see what happens there. And then the following week, certainly, we'll be in the new auditorium. So be in prayer about that. This past week, I, uh, I was going through some of the things that were uh, retrieved from my grandmother's possessions. My grandmother went home to be with the Lord this past year, and uh, they've been going through her things. She used to be the historian of the church, and they brought me a huge box full of notebooks and notes and all kinds of interesting things, and I've been reading through it with great interest. All kinds of historical information about the church, and I actually found in there when they bought these pews. And unfortunately, the dates are a little bit confusing. I believe this building was built around 1875. There's been three buildings that were associated with this church. This is the second one on this spot. So they tore the first one down, apparently, and built this one on top. But uh, somewhere after they built that third building, almost immediately thereafter, they needed seating, and they, uh, they purchased these pews. There was some sort of big controversy uh, over it. They didn't have the money. God provided the money, and they were able to buy these pews. And God has certainly used them for a long, long time. So enjoy them. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be saying goodbye to these and moving on to a new phase. And God's going to bless that just as much. And we're looking forward to what he's going to do there as well. Uh, well, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse number 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, and yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? 
But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. If you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet I will give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. And I want you, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profits, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, and if you have a uh, note in your margin, it probably says virgin daughter there. If she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin daughter, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Father God, we thank you for the Bible. And Lord, we thank you even for hard passages, difficult passages, and Lord, certainly we come to one today, which raises all kinds of questions and concerns. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you'll speak to our hearts even from this passage. I pray you'll give me wisdom. I pray, Lord, you'll fill me with your spirit. And as I attempt to be clear and accurate, I pray, Lord, there'd be no offense. I pray, Father, people would receive this as the word. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd help me to be as kind as I can be. As I, as I present it, just, just work here today, Lord. There is so much that we need to hear from this. And I pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a dividing line in our study in 1 Corinthians. 
Up until this point, we have been looking at specific problems in, first, in uh, the Corinthian church. Uh, problems that Paul had heard out about in a variety of different ways. Some of the problems had been reported to him by members of Chloe's household. Chloe, who had gone and told Paul uh, some of the problems that were going on. And some of the things he had heard about just because they were common knowledge. Because it was being noised abroad that things were taking place. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time dealing with two of the issues. The first four chapters of the book deals with one, and that was division in the local church. And you remember, we looked at several messages where we talked about the, the problem of them being divided and uh, all that that entailed. And that was uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, the first four chapters. And then we also noticed in chapter 5 another problem, and this is the one that he said was common knowledge. There was some blatant immorality that was taking place in the church. And so he had to deal with that as well. And then chapter 6 we had just kind of a, I think maybe a, a, an offshoot of the division issue when they talked, he talked a little bit about the fact that they were taking each other to court. You remember that? And uh, that was perhaps the, uh, the result of division. But now we come to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, the very first phrase marks a change in what is taking place here. Notice what it says. It says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And so now we're not talking about things that have been reported to Paul. Now we're not talking about things that he's just heard out in the wild. Now we're talking about things that they have specifically set down in a letter and sent to Paul asking about. They had asked a bunch of questions. And this chapter, and actually some more of, of, of 1 Corinthians we're going to see, are the result of questions that they had asked him. And in this particular chapter, chapter 7, every question seems to have been related to marriage or family or relationships within the home, uh, that sort of thing. For example, they apparently asked the question something, something like this. Uh, I don't know if this was the exact question, but they must have asked something like this. They must have said, uh, is celibacy a requirement even within marriage? You say, well, now where are you getting that? Well, if you read this, that seems to be the question he's answering. I don't know if that's exactly how they worded it. Perhaps he was asking more plainly or more, more uh, crudely, uh, is sex allowable within marriage? That may be the question that they asked specifically, because that seems to be what he's answering. Now, it may have stemmed from the fact that Paul had laid down so many regulations around how sex is to be practiced in a Christian life. Uh, I don't know. And it may be related to the fact that they lived in such a, a, a culture where that was so foreign to them that they were reacting a little bit too harshly. There may have been some who zealously said, all right, if all these things are true that you've taught, Paul, well, then the safest course for us is to just say, no sense. It's not allowed anywhere, not even in marriage. And so that seems to be perhaps the question that they had. And, of course, there are those, even in our day, who have a similar approach. Beth and I, when we were traveling somewhere, Massachusetts, I think, we visited a Shaker village, Hancock, Han was that new in Massachusetts? Hancock, Massachusetts? Shaker village. And of course the Shakers were a sect which believed this exact thing. The Shakers were a sect. They would have called themselves Christian, but as you read and study some of what they believed, I'm not sure I would apply that word to them, but uh, they would have called themselves that, but they believed in absolutely no sexual relationships whatsoever. Not even within marriage. And of course as you tour their now empty city, their now empty town, you see the practical outworking of that belief. It doesn't work very, very well. And so Paul apparently was answering something like that. Maybe more generally he was asking or answering the question, can you simply clarify for us the rightness and wrongness of sex? 
And I think that's what he's talking about in the first nine verses there. In verses 10 through 24, he's providing insight into another one. They must have asked some question about divorce and remarriage because he answers some questions about that in verses 10 through 24. And then in verses 25 and following, he talks about uh, just singleness and celibacy and, and things like that. And so they must have asked some questions about that as well. So let's look at these for just a moment this morning. Let's ask ourselves, what did Paul say about these issues? Because they are pretty relevant to our world today. First of all, I would suggest he said this. Verse number one, he said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, that may have actually been the actual question that was posed. If some of your Bibles, you may have a particular translation. I don't remember which ones I noticed this in, but some translations have that in quotes. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And if it's in quotes in your Bible, then that, the, the translation, translators of that particular version are obviously believing that this was the question or the statement that they had proposed. They had written to him, is it true that it is good for a man not to touch a woman? And he was repeating that back to them. That's one way of interpreting that. Others, the New King James does not have it in quotes, which would seem to indicate Paul is just simply answering their unspoken question with that statement. And here, here's, here's what he says. Here's what he says. He says several things, really. He says, number one, celibacy is a good state. And, and we can't deny that. He's all throughout here kind of talking about and singing the praises of the celibate lifestyle because that was his lifestyle. He mentions his own singleness here. And he says several different times that he kind of wishes that everybody would live that particular life. But he also says he recognizes not everybody can. One of the benefits of marriage is that it fulfills the need for sex in a life. And Paul says... That is perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Sex outside of marriage is a problem. Verse number two, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Sex outside of marriage is a problem, and marriage is the solution to that problem. He says here that not only is sex acceptable and good and even honorable, if you pull in the teaching of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number four, within a marriage, Paul goes even further. He goes so far as to say that within a marriage, it's an obligation. It's an obligation. Each marriage partner can expect their needs to be met in the other. He says abstinence for a period of time to devote each other to prayer and fasting is okay, but only for a time. Each is to fulfill the other's physical needs. That's verses 3 through 5. They must have asked the question, is it better to remain single then? If this is true. And he answers that question. Again, he definitely prefers singleness. Look at verse number seven. Verse number seven, he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself. He was single. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Verse number eight, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain, even as I am. He was single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry so is it better to remain single? He says, well, in his opinion, he thinks singleness is a good thing. He also says here that singleness is a gift, just as marriage is a gift. Did you catch that in verse number seven? Uh, each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The context is talking about marriage versus singleness. And so both of those, he is saying, are a gift of God. And Paul said we ought to be thankful for the gift that God has given us, whichever way it is. He says there are advantages to singleness. 
One source I consulted put it like this. Three reasons Paul thought remaining single was a superior choice. Number one, because there was an impending time of distress for Christians. That's verses 26 through 28. I don't know if he's talking about the end times there, or if just in Corinth they were really going through a tough time. I don't know. Uh, I, I saw both types of interpretation there. Number two, he said another reason is because of the imminent return of Christ, verses 29 through 31. And, and the third reason, which is I think his strongest point, is because singleness gives you an opportunity for undistracted service for Christ, verses 32 through 35. If you're married, you have a wife, you have a husband, you have to take care of your wife or your husband. If you have kids, you have to take care of your kids. Your life, by definition, is divided. Paul says here, one advantage to singleness is, that's gone. And you can serve God with absolutely undistracted devotion. And so I think Paul is saying here, don't you, don't you think that Paul is saying here that, yeah, in my opinion, singleness is the better state. But then he qualifies that. He says, now wait a minute now. That's only true if you have the gift of singleness. That's verse number seven. And he also says, gives us some practical advice here on how we can know if we have that gift. How do you know if you have the gift of singleness? Well, according to verse number nine, if you can't control yourself, you don't have the gift of singleness. And he says you should go off and get married. Paul's a very practical guy. His one source I read stated he is no armchair theologian. He absolutely said it like it, like it was. So, basically, I think that's what he was saying about singleness. Now, let me add something to Paul's words. Paul did not speak uh, quite frankly enough on this matter. I don't think so. Let me speak a little bit more frankly about it. You know, in our day, I don't know if this was true in his day, but in our day, there seems to be an increasingly common belief amongst young folks that they ought to remain single because remaining single allows them to be more free, allows them more personal freedom, allows for a more happy-go-lucky and happy lifestyle. And I want to suggest to you that nowhere in Paul's commendation of singleness is he talking about that. Nowhere. There is a phrase that has crept into the vernacular today, friends with benefits. You hear this kind of stuff on television all the time. That's what our, our uh, culture believes about singleness today. I don't need to get married. Why? I can have all those benefits outside of marriage. That is not what Paul is talking about here at all. That is sin. That is verse number two, sexual immorality. That's not what he's discussing. What he is discussing here is the opportunity as a single person to give yourself with absolute devotion to God. So we need to be clear we understand that. I think his views on singleness might best be summed up in verse number 35. Look at verse number 35. He says, uh, this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. I think that's his key. Another question that seems to be asked, and this is a hard one. This is a hard one. He asks, he's obviously asked some questions about divorce. It was a real issue then, just as it is a real issue now. They must have asked the question, is it permissible? They must have asked the question, does it make a difference whether an unequal yoke exists? One member of the marriage is married, or is a uh, Saved. One member is not saved, an unequal yoke. And they must have asked the question, if divorce does occur, 
is remarriage permissible? And so here's Paul's response to those apparent questions. He said, in every case, the desired state is to stay put. Divorce is never the will of God. I don't know how else to interpret verses 10 and 11. Not to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so stay put. And and clearly those verses say that once a person is divorced, they are not to remarry unless they remarry the person that they divorced. Most sources I consulted believe that verse number 11 where it says, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, it doesn't say that about the husband, but it's implied. It applies to both of them. And so that was his apparent response. No divorce. Divorce is never the will of God. Stay put. And perhaps anticipating their question, but what if I'm saved and my partner is not? He responded. He said, well, if the unsaved member is not seeking a divorce, the saved should not either. That's verses 12 through 14. For the Christian, the solution to marital conflict should not be divorce. It should be that described in Ephesians chapter 4. This says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. He does say in verse 15 that if the unsaved member seeks divorce and leaves, there's no further burden placed on the saved member. They're not under bondage. They can rest in the fact God has called them to peace. Romans chapter 12 says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so if possible, I believe Paul is teaching here, Christians should not seek divorce. There are going to be exceptions. And the fact is, Jesus even listed one exception in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 32 when he gave the exception of of, uh, fornication, adultery. But always, I think Paul's point here is that for the believer, divorce is a last resort, not a first. And if it does occur, Paul says remarriage to anybody else then is not an option. He does say here that one reason a saved person should strive to remain married even when their partner is unsaved is because you just don't know whether or not you're going to be the reason that that person comes to know the Lord. Peter said the same thing, First Peter chapter 3. He said, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some don't obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. I knew a lady in New Jersey. Her name was Helen. She had been married. She was a believer. She had been married to a lost man, blatantly, openly, proudly lost. For years and years and years. I cannot remember how many. The number 30 sticks in my mind, but I'm not sure that's true. And yet there came a day when he came to know the Lord. And in talking to him about it, he said, I could not get around her faithful, continuous living for Christ. And he ended up coming to the Lord because of that. Now let me say something to those of you who may be affected by this, because this is, I know I'm on dangerous ground here. I know that I'm on a ground that can hurt people. And so let me say something to those who might be affected. I think Paul's overriding words in verse 15 apply here. God has called us to peace. And also verse number 35, this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you. I I don't think Paul is here providing this instruction at all to hurt anybody who's already in that case. He was answering a question that they asked him about the desired state. He was not answering this question to beat up people who were already 
having gone through these kinds of things. If you are somebody who is approaching something like this, there's instruction here for you. But if you are somebody who's already fallen to a different to a different choice, if you're already divorced, or if you've already gone through something like this, let me remind you of another story. A story that I think applies. Jesus told a story one time about a prodigal son. The prodigal son greatly disappointed his father and took off. Wasted his life. And then one day the prodigal son turned around and he came home and he says, you know what? I have sinned against against heaven and against my father. I'm going to turn to him. And we always think about that story and we think about that prodigal coming back. But the story is not about the prodigal. The story is about the father. The story is about God. And the picture of God in that story is that from the very moment the prodigal son turned his back on his father, the father was waiting and standing and watching, arms outstretched, ready to accept him back. And when he did come back, the father ran to meet him, put a ring on him and a robe on him, and threw a big feast and welcomed him home. The fact is, I think it is important for us to remember there is forgiveness with God. And no matter where we are and what we have fallen to, forgiveness is the word we need to remember. Psalm chapter 130 and verse 4 says, there is forgiveness with you. Psalm 85 verse 2, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My God is a God of forgiveness. It matters not what we have done. He loves you, forgives you, and runs to meet you when you turn to him. So already divorced, already remarried, then let's add another thing to that, already forgiven. Already forgiven. So just rejoice and go on and serve God where you are. That's what I believe that Paul is teaching here for that. So that's a hard passage. I'm glad it's over. (laughs) It's a hard passage. Look at all the things in this passage. Sex within marriage, divorce and remarriage, celibacy versus marriage, good grief. There's all kinds of things to digest here, is there not? And it's all relevant, highly relevant. But I want to stop there, and I want to, I, want to, I want to change gears for a minute. Because if you looked in your bullets and you noticed the title of today's sermon, you noticed it had nothing to do with any of that. You might have thought I was just trying to trick you so you wouldn't run out when you saw what we were really going to talk about. No, no, no. The title of today's sermon is, Why I've Changed My Mind About Corinth. And let me explain why that's true. And I just want to talk about that for a minute this morning. You know, as long as I can remember, I've thought poorly of the church at Corinth. I've always thought they were a bad excuse for a church. I have said in sermons in the past, and many of you have heard me say it, that I would never name a church Corinth after the church of Corinth. I remember years ago, I used to get a magazine called The Sword of the Lord, and there was a church, Corinth Baptist Church, used to advertise in there. And every time I'd see that, I'd think, oh, people are absolutely nuts. Why would anybody name a church after such a pitiful excuse of a church as the church of Corinth? And, of course, the reason for that thinking was because they were. A church with problems. We've talked about all kinds of them. The division and the immorality and all that. They were a church with problems. But 
in that respect, I guess they were like any other church. But as I've read chapter 7 now, I've come, to a, I've come to a completely different conclusion. You know, when I prepare a message, I read and I read and I read over and over and over this passage. And it's funny the things the Lord will bring out of it. It's funny the things the Lord will stick in your brain that you can't get away from. And you know, as I read this, there was one phrase that I could not get away from this week. It had nothing to do with sexual immorality. It had nothing to do with divorce and remarriage. It had nothing to do with any of that. It was verse number one, the very first phrase. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. I couldn't get that out of my head. Concerning the things of which you wrote to me. It made me think differently about this church, and I want to share with you two reasons why. Two reasons why I've changed my mind about Corinth. Number one, I've changed my mind about Corinth because these Christians cared about the truth. At least some of them did. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. In a culture that taught exactly the opposite, in every case that we've just talked about here, exactly the opposite, there were some people there who wanted to know what was the right way. There were some people there who wanted to know what God had to say about these matters. When they asked Paul about these matters of of sexuality and marriage and divorce and all that, they had to know that his answer was going to be different than that of their culture and their world. And yet they were more concerned about God's way than the world's way. And I haven't been able to get the thought out of my head. We need to ponder that for a moment. And we need to ask ourselves... As I've been asking myself lately whether we're the same. When we're faced with such difficult decisions in our lives. Is that where our head goes? When we're faced with those kinds of questions. Do we want to know what God says about it? At least some in the Corinthian church did. I've known more than one Christian who when faced with difficult life choices like some here. They didn't want to hear what God had to say about it. Pastor Phil has shared about a friend of his who he had to talk with one time in a hard way about some wrong choices, and he didn't want to hear about it. Didn't want to hear about it. Too many people, when confronted with life issues like this, will turn to friends who have gone through similar problems. Facing a divorce. Okay, the first place I'll go is the person who has gone through a divorce and been through a divorce. It's amazing how many will do that rather than turn to God. In our culture, too many revere worldly psychologists and counselors over God's word. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with psychologists. Don't go out here and say that. I didn't say that. But they ought not to be our first choice. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That ought to be our first choice. In 2 Kings chapter 3, we have the story of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the king of Jerusalem or Judah, the, the lower kingdom. Jehoram, the son of Ahab, was the king of Israel. Jehoram was having trouble with the Moabites, and he called on Jehoshaphat one day, and he said, hey, let's go out to battle together. And Jehoshaphat said, okay. That was a mistake. Shouldn't have said that, but he did. And when he got up there, he says, you know what? Before we do this, let's seek the will of God first. Let's see what God has to say about this. And Jehoram said, okay, and he called in all of his prophets. Well, all of his prophets were idiots. All of his prophets were lost. They were idolaters. They knew nothing. So they babbled and dribbled on and said all these silly things. And, and Jehoshaphat said in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse number 11, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that may, we may inquire of the Lord by him? Basically, he was saying, who in the world cares what these crazy nuts say? I want to know what God has to say about this particular matter. And there were at least some in Corinth 
who wanted the same. Some who wanted to know God's will. Some whose overriding concern was, what has God said about it? And oh, that all of us would be so concerned to know the will of God. So I've changed my mind about Corinth because there were some there who wanted to know the truth. And finally, I've changed my mind about the Corinthians because they cared about the truth enough to take action to find it. Now, this may be redundant. It may, I hope it's not. I think there's a distinction here. You see, it's one thing to be concerned about God's will. It's another thing to seek out God's will, to take action. You know, somebody here, somebody in Corinth had to call a meeting. Somebody in Corinth had to start compiling a list of questions. Somebody in Corinth had to then figure out a way to get that list of questions to Paul, whether or not it was sent by whatever their mail system was of the day, or whether somebody actually had to carry it. We don't know, but somebody had to take action. You know, we don't have the excuses that they had. We have the answers completed in our Bible. We have it all right here. We have the answers to what what does God say about this on our bookshelves in our home. They had to go seeking. If we would know God's will for our lives, we have the source right here. I know some of you are probably thinking, here he goes again. He's going to talk to us again about how important it is for us to read our Bibles. Amen. I am going to talk to you about that. I hope the Lord takes me home if I ever stop talking to you about that. Because there's nothing more important for your success in the Christian life than as you will learn to go to the word of God for every situation you face in your life. Joshua said, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Some, some perhaps in this room, have never developed a habit of reading your Bible every day. What are you going to do when these hard questions come up in your life? Some, Perhaps did at one time, but have allowed that habit, that discipline to fade. What are you going to do when the hard questions come up in your life? Questions like these Corinthians had. See, I've changed my mind about them. I'm not going to say they're a bad church anymore. I'm not going to do that. Because not only did they want to know the truth, but they sought the truth. They went to the one they knew had the truth. In their case, it was the Apostle Paul. In our case, it's the Word of God. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to listen to it preached. We need to attend church faithfully where we're taught the Word of God. We need to seek it just as they did. And then when questions arrive in our lives, hard questions, and who would deny these were hard questions, we're going to have a source of truth that we can go to. Well, I'm done. We've talked about a lot of different things this morning, all hard Some of them may apply to you. I don't know. Some here this morning may relate to the Corinthians' questions about marriage. Some may struggle with sexual temptation outside of marriage, and some may struggle with sexual tensions within marriage. Some may wonder if they're going to remain single all their lives. Some may find themselves in a difficult and troublesome marriage. They may be listening to well-meaning friends and family tell them to just chuck it all and get out. Some may be married to an unsaved partner, struggle in ways few would know or understand. And all of these seem like extremely complicated issues, and yet the Corinthians knew there was a source of truth. 
and they went to that source of truth. It was not found in their world. It was not found in their culture. It was found in God and in his word. And that's where we'll find the answers as well. So if you're one who's heard me ridicule the church at Corinth in the past, I apologize. You won't hear it again. Because I've changed my mind about Corinth. They wanted to know what God said. I remember when I was working at Delphi in Warren, I remember a particular friend of mine who had a poster of Albert Einstein hanging in his cube, his cubicle. This wild picture of Albert Einstein. It had this caption at the bottom that said, I want to know God's thoughts. That was the Corinthians. And it should be us.